Welcome to the Law Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we are lucky to have uh, with us Andrew Weinrich. Andrew uh, has founded many companies uh, in his life uh, and had, had some really interesting success. Uh, I think most founders, Andrew, when they when they hear your story, would think, wow, that was, that's a great, uh, you led a great founder life. Tell us about it. I, I hope it's not over. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's funny. Yeah, no, I mean, but so far, I mean, right? I, I've been uh, I've been doing startups since um, the I guess the late 1990s. Um, I was briefly a uh, an attorney, and in 1990, really at the end of 1996, 1997, I started um, what was the very first social network. So I had this idea that I could change the way or make networking more efficient if I could get everyone to index their relationships in a single place and see the people you don't know through the people you do. And that was the underpinning of my first startup called Six Degrees. We actually filed a patent on um, on that construct of indexing relationships in a single place, uh, two parties verifying the relationship, and then seeing the people you don't know through the people you do, which is even today the seminal patent in the um, in the social networking space. So, um, so that was six degrees. We grew to become, I think the largest, uh, online community in the late nineties, uh, sold that business in, um, at the end of 1999. Um, and then started a number of other companies all focused on uh, what I thought could be disruptive opportunities. So, uh, a company called Joltage built one of the first, what are called backend operational support systems, to bring Wi-Fi to public places, uh, a company called I Stand For, one of the first companies to um, offer political campaigns and nonprofits the ability to raise money online and build community online, uh, a mobile dating company. Even before the introduction of the iPhone, um, we eventually sold to Match, um, a mobile CRM. We sold to IBM, and now I'm the chairman of a business analytics company called Indicative. Um, I have a uh, online bootcamp and um, and my own podcast called Predicting Our Future. Oh, that's great. So tell us when you were at, you were at, were you in law school when you started Six Degrees? No, I I um, I had hoped to start a business in law school and never practice law, but um, but it didn't go quite as planned. I I was um, general counsel of a small technology company um, that was on the verge of doing a small cap listing on Nasdaq. And right before the IPO, I left to start Six Degrees. Gotcha. Okay, fun. So you uh, you tell a story. Um, you, you've got there's some the uh, video out there. I think you're speaking at a conference. Uh, if you YouTube, if YouTube uh, Andrew Weinrich, you'll find this pretty cool video. You talk about this sort of mystery of how you know some people talk about starting businesses and then other people actually do it. And you, <laughs> you spend some time thinking about like what what distinguishes this, these two people. I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to hear you talk about that. I mean, it, a lot of people think that entrepreneurs are the smartest or there's a, a certain level of intelligence you need. And my own experience has been, um, it's not that entrepreneurs are, are any smarter or necessarily any smarter than anyone else. And um, in some instances, they're more creative, but they're not even necessarily more creative. What, what, what makes entrepreneurs stand apart is the ability to say, I'm going to create momentum when there otherwise is none. I'm going to figure out how to move a ball forward. And that 
singular concept of saying, I will use my persistence, I will use my determination to advance a thought and to take a risk. That's what sets entrepreneurs apart. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, there's some there's something interesting about that. Mike's uh, Mike, what do you what's your perspective on that, or do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, no, that resonates with me like like fully. Um, there's uh, it seems to me like the people I know a lot of folks in the mobile space. Um, that's sort of where I came up in in terms of business. Um, I, I was also a lawyer uh, for a bunch of years, and then started bit my entrepreneurial like my, my in earnest entrepreneurial career when the iPhone SDK came out, and um, and it was. Uh, the big difference, especially like in the app world, everybody has an idea for an app and the difference between the people that are, I guess, entrepreneurs and the people that just like to sit around and talk about things are, are you know, it's whether you even take that first step, you know, what are you going to do? So you have an idea for something you want to build or, or an opportunity you want to pursue, um, you know, literally like, the, you know, deciding what's the first step I need to take to get there um, and then actually making that step and then taking the next step. I mean, those, that seems like a huge differentiator is, is just, you know, are you going to execute? Are you going to actually build something? Or are you going to just talk about it? Um, and that's why I always get nervous when I hear people talk about their businesses and they talk for a long time about what they're planning to do. And, uh, you know, six months later, you talk to them again and they're still talking about what they're planning to do. And you're kind of wondering when they're ever going to build it. Um, yeah. Well, I, 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 mean, I, mean, I mean, it's interesting. It's rare you meet someone. If you know someone for a long time, it's rare you meet someone who doesn't have a good idea. It's the antithesis of what you would think, right? You would think, you know, you hear all the time, I would start a business, but I don't have a good idea. You hear that from people all the time. I don't like what I'm doing. If circumstances were different, if something presented itself to me. But most of those same people that are saying that, if you spend enough time with them over the course of a couple of years, they will actually share with you an idea that's fairly good. And, and you know, I like... I like to say there are very few great ideas. There's just bad ideas and good ideas. And most people at some point have a good idea. And it becomes great when they iterate on it. It becomes great when they execute against it. And so, but it's really hard to start. It's really hard. Like there's a certain level of almost arrogance that you need to believe that you can do something that in some way, shape or form other people haven't done. So I, I, you know, it, that's when, when I, when I try to work with entrepreneurs or when I try to assess, is this someone I think that could do something exciting? It, it's often more based on this persona, this ability for someone to project um, a, a ruthless determination just to move forward than trying to assess whether someone has identified you know, the next great Tesla or the next great Google. That's just so hard to assess. Yeah, Tesla's a great example. I mean, what's the idea of Tesla that, that you know, there had been electric cars before, but the, the success of that company is purely based on just the, the tenacity and the execution and how good the product is. It's not about the, the idea other than make a better car. Um, you know, that's a great example because I don't think, yeah, I don't think Tesla's What's what's the idea, you know, behind Tesla? It's it's not an idea other than I guess you know there's a future in electric cars and we should participate in it, right? We we actually had electric cars at the turn of you know at the at the early part of the 1900s, if you can believe that. We had electric cars that that represented something like a quarter of um, of the market in cars. Now they couldn't go more than 20 miles an hour. They couldn't tra- travel more than a, than than a certain distance. 
But the notion of an electric car isn't new. What Musk reimagined was, or imagined was, that there was a legacy way of thinking about how you construct an automobile. And that the way to build a, a new type of automobile was not that there was there would be one component that would contribute to a more efficient car, a more efficient battery, um, but that he would reimagine every single aspect of the car and that he would increment, if you, if you almost think about it, like if you could gain efficiencies, you know, a little bit here and a percentage here and a percentage there, that by reimagining every aspect of production, you could build something better. I mean, that's, that is a, first of all, that's an unoriginal thought, but the, the boldness in saying that someone who has no real experience in automobiles can come in and reimagine every aspect of something is awesome. I mean, that's what makes him one of the, the great entrepreneurs, not just of today, but of, of, of really any time. Yeah. He seems up there. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to ignore that, that, that ambition that he has in, in terms of just the types of projects that he pursues. Um, yeah, I mean he's he's up there with like a with like an Edison, uh, you know, not to you know idolize him. Well, I guess we'll look back on his career and see, but but uh, I mean, yeah, just the 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 diversity of the types of projects that he's that he's uh, going after and how ambitious they are is pretty impressive. Yeah, that that boldness, you know, I mean, I, I mean, in one sense, I, I think Edison's a good is is a good comparison. I mean, Edison was um, Edison. I think of Edison more as an inventor, but he really was an entrepreneur as well. And, but here, you know, what Musk does is he has, he has the boldness of these seemingly crazy visions. And then just through sheer force of will, he assembles the right people to flesh out the different components you would need to affect the vision. Yeah. Let's think you've got, you've got the Tesla, Automobile. He's he's in uh, uh, commercial trucking now, right? Uh, the the SpaceX with space exploration, uh, the boring company, the, the boring company, and and all the Hyperloop transportation stuff. That I'm not sure how. I think Hyperloop. I think he's a little hands off on, but still, it's an amazing thing that he's kind of spearheaded. And then this neural lace thing, which is like a a computer like machine brain interface that he's spending some effort on. I mean, these are these are huge ideas. I mean, they're just they're, it's just I mean. I think the impact, if any of these things become successful, is going to be uh, enormous. I, I agree. I agree. Really interesting stuff. So you have a theory, um, Andrew, that you need to have a sort of a macro theory of of the world or of, of like how we're going to live in the future. You need something like this to sort of um, – that needs to sort of motivate or inform sort of the whole the whole thing you're working on. Talk, talk about that for a second. So – I, the it's a good segue from um, from Elon Musk because um, my general sense about entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurs don't singularly create new verticals, and by that I mean that in the absence of Bill Gates, we would still have a computer on every desktop. In the absence of Steve Jobs we would still have smartphones. In the absence of Elon Musk, we are moving towards, uh, we were moving towards electric vehicles, first hybrid and then electric vehicles, really because of the inc incredible um, 
pressure associated with with global warming. And so these are what I would call inevitabilities. And if you're thinking about starting a business and you're trying to inspire people about why they should get behind you, what's interesting is to describe an inevitability. What's interesting is to say, I have a surfboard and I am going to put that in a place where I can leverage waves that are going to come in. And the reason you should invest in me first and foremost is because I am describing to you an area where there are about to be massive waves. So, and that's important for a host of reasons, right? The, the one reason that's important is because um, people want to know that if you're successful, if you dominate a market, you're not dominating a market where if you sell 90% of the products in the market, there's only a million dollars worth of products to sell in the, total, in, in the totality of the market. So they, they want to have a sense that this is a big opportunity if you're thinking about what investors are excited about. But there's also this, this sense beyond the, this notion that what you're doing should matter. And when I say matter, I don't just mean should matter to, to other people, should be impactful, should have a social benefit. I, I, I'm not even referring to matter in that context. I'm talking about matter in terms of the fact that there will be substantial scale to what you're doing. So matter to an investor to care enough to put money in if your business requires venture. But also... The likelihood of you individually being successful goes up substantially if you're playing in a place that's going to have a lot of activity. So if you're able to anticipate that uh, cryptocurrencies are about to take off, you're more likely to do well than if you focus on a vertical that's not about to take off. If you're, if you're someone who, who had said years ago, Every single product will eventually be sold online, and so e-commerce interests me, and that's a, a wave that's about to take off. You're more likely to partake in the benefits of that larger wave, even if you're not the standout. So, um, so what I like to tell people is you should have a perspective, first and foremost, on a space. And, and, and so I've tried to do that myself. Like My perspective is... Um, networking, which has been around since the beginning of time, right? I mean, that's how we, we meet the people we don't know through the people we do. My perspective is that will change if we could all index our relationships. My perspective was the world would run out of, of regulated bandwidth and everyone would want high-speed bandwidth in public places. And the only way to do that is over Wi-Fi. So someone would need to build a what's called an operational support system to enable that. Um, my perspective was desktop online dating was was annoying and inefficient and if uh, if there was a mobile experience that knew where you were well not only would you prefer to interact with that experience that online dating experience through your phone but it would be great if it could identify locations for people to meet and suggest places that were equidistant and so in everything that i do i try to say first and foremost what is my macro thesis what is it where can i predict the future and, but the future that I'm predicting is an inevitability with or without me. And that's the key piece. It, it, I'm predicting a future that's going to occur because there's a, a certain number of conditions that are met. So you could not have smartphones, for example, before 
um, you had more powerful microprocessors, and, and and prices had come down of different componentry on 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 the iPhone, and 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 all of 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 the conditions necessary to put a really a powerful computer in your hand were largely aligned when Jobs started thinking about the iPhone. So it, it's not it's not that no one might have thought about building a smartphone. I mean, there was the BlackBerry before, but a really powerful smartphone. 10 years before, 20 years before, 40 years before. It's just that all of the supporting technology wasn't there to do it then. So that's what I like. What I like listening to, what I like thinking about myself is what are these macro inevitabilities? What are these macro theses that people can hang their hats on? Tell me about that first. And then let's talk about your business. Yeah, I'm curious when you think when you talk about inevitabilities, I see that sometimes in certain spaces. Um, Like, so one of the areas that, Joe and I talk about on and off is is VR and and AR, and um, I don't have any any opportunities I'm pursuing in VR just partly because it seems like it lends itself toward people that have the skills in the gaming space that are already kind of there. But but what the thing that strikes me about VR, especially when you try one of the the current like modern generation headsets, is that it's sort of not quite there yet. Like it's 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 entertaining, but it still makes you a little sick, or the resolution's not quite there. But you realize, you know, there is no. You have to just you follow the logical steps forward, and and it it isn't too far off in the future that these things are going to be extremely compelling, and everybody's going to use them because they'll be you know, amazing experiences. Um, I don't know what the business opportunity is there because that business, the gaming space in particular already exists and people are already buying games. Um, but I, I don't know. What do you think about, like, does, does VR strike you as one of those things that's, that's inevitable? Like, well, at, well do you think, point, do you think, do you think at some point in the future, whether it's, it's, it's 10 years or 50 years, a doctor in India will operate on a patient in America with robotics in America and uh, a VR experience that allows um, the doctor to perform the surgery from overseas. I don't see why not, right? I mean, the technology exists. If it it iterates, that certainly would be possible, right? And for, for, for augmented reality, do you think we get to a place, or virtual reality, where we get to a place where the way that people are exposed the primary way people purchase travel products are they literally experience what it's like um, to go to Paris or to hike in the Himalayas well before they actually go on that trip. And they book their trips after some type of um, a VR or AR experience. That's a good question. Yeah, that's the, that's the trickier part. You're getting closer to the edges about you know how will people use these things. Like the, the technology will exist. But aren't, but aren't those inevitable? I mean, that's that's yeah. that's I mean, exactly. What I mean, like, like is, isn't if you know we we have a challenge. We know. Forget about a doctor in India and a patient in the United States. We know that we don't have enough doctors in rural areas to provide the types of medical care we need at the right moment in time. And isn't it likely that at some point in the future that and and again, you know, there are so many legal and regulatory and. And, you know, issues associated with this. But isn't that something that if you just look far enough ahead into the future, isn't that something that's likely to happen? And, and the same with the travel example. Like, I, I think, you know, there's a danger when you identify an inevitability. You know, it's likely that at some point we'll have colonies um, of people that are living um, 
that are living in space, right? For some period of time. And it's not clear, you know, how many of them and, and, you know, but it's the, the challenge with those things are, it's unclear whether that's a hundred years away or, mm-hmm. or five and, years away. But, and timing, but timing's a huge deal. We've seen this num- number of times, people that are too early that have amazing ideas that are just that the, the timing isn't quite right. And they miss, they miss the market or they miss the boat because they were too early. Um, yep. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, just so step one, <laughs> identify something that is inevitable. Uh, step two, make sure the thing that's inevitable isn't so far off in the future that you're, you're, you're paddling way too soon. You guys, you got to time the wave. Like you said, good, good metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've heard, you've heard the expression, you know, in the gold rush, you know, in the, in the, in the great California gold rush, you're better off selling shovels to the gold diggers than being a gold digger. And because most of the gold diggers didn't find gold, but they all needed shovels. And, you know, in the, in the first internet wave, the, the folks that actually made money, they didn't raise money, but they made money, were the ones that were selling uh, development services and a host of services to all of the internet companies that had raised money to build these very speculative ideas that ultimately went under. So coming back to the wave, you know, if you can identify a wave that's coming and then you're building a business that is selling shovels to the gold diggers and a ton of companies come into a space and they don't actually solve a problem, but they're all using your tool set to get them closer. Maybe one or two approaches solving the problem. Um, that's a good opportunity. And that's a, that's a, a great instance of um, why someone that is able to identify where the next wave is going to come is more likely to do well than someone who's just randomly starting a business without any wave or any context around it. They just think it's a cool idea. Yeah. I like this framework. So you tell us about your, like what you're working on now and how, I mean, you have a, you have a program you you work with uh, founders and, or, you know, aspiring uh, uh, founders. Tell us about, tell us about that. So I, I, uh, I throw a, a two-day boot camp that we've had, you know, several hundred um, founders come through, and, and but it's it's a it's it is a very real it is a very simple proposition, which is that um, great entrepreneurs need to innovate really in one area. That one area is they have some unique idea. There they have there's some uniqueness to their product or their service, and for everything else. Uh, there's a best practice and they should learn from what other people have done. So, you know, the, the idea of what does it mean to craft a business plan or what does it mean to put together a marketing plan or a sales plan or what does a commission structure look like or what type of, um, of document should I put together that, that are, uh, product the the document the product I want to build uh, bef- before I get going and how does financing work and what are the different options for financing and how should I structure uh, my option pool and so what we try to do over the course of you know 14 hours of programming in two days is give people bre- best practices for every discipline they should engage in that's one thing we try to do the other thing we try to do is we say to people. There's a minimum level of competence you need to be successful. Minimum level of competence you need in every discipline to be successful. So one of the red flags you see with startups is they say, I have a great idea. Um, I'm not a technologist. I'll completely outsource that. And 
they don't appreciate that they don't need to be a programmer, but they need a minimum level of understanding to master and to dictate how to construct their product. Same, same thing on the marketing side. People say, you know, I know nothing about marketing. I'm going to outsource to an agency. Those are usually hallmarks or those are usually red flags of an entrepreneur that's about to go over a cliff that they don't take the time to develop what that minimum level of competency is. So what I try to do is define for people what the minimum level of competency is they need in every discipline, outline it for them. I can't give it to them in such a short period of time, but but that's what I try to do. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Uh, I was, I don't know, fortunate, unfortunate. When I came up and uh, and made the apps that I made, you know, they were smaller projects that didn't require big teams, but uh, every business that I've ever worked on, the assumption going in when I started was usually that it's just me and that I'm going to do everything, um, you know, from writing the code to uh, to doing the graphics to the marketing and emailing bloggers and, and everything. And and I think it was worth doing that, that all that stuff, even though I'm not great, there's certainly things that I'm better at than others, but having it just trying and, and, and feeling like empowered that you can try to do everything in the business and try it out. You'll figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at. And once you understand the job, it becomes that much easier to find a good person to do that for you. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You can, you can tell other people what to do because you have an understanding of the complexity of the task. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to at least try, you know, it, it, you should, I, I feel like the, the best attitude you can have going into a business is, is one of resourcefulness that if there's something you don't know how to do, we live in an amazing time where you can go on YouTube or read articles on online. I mean, if you want to learn how to do PR, I mean, you're never going to be as good as, as a seasoned PR professional, but I mean, you can, you can learn how to do the basics of PR from watching YouTube videos and reading books. Um, the same thing with coding. Coding's a little harder because it takes a bit of time to, to get, up to speed, but even coding, you can teach yourself. You don't have to be a, a university taught um, programmer to, to learn the basics of how to code things. Um, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, I just think that's, that's the, the best advice you, you can give somebody starting is to not to shy away from, from learning all the pieces that they need to know, even if they don't know them. It's, it's interesting the way you put it. It's, um, there are people that project a DIY mindset and, um, and those people are usually successful. Like what you're describing of, you know, I'm a one-person show when I get going. And then as I'm doing stuff, you know, even if I fail at it and it turns out I'm terrible at design or I'm terrible at at um, at, at buying ads, I understand conceptually how to do it. And so you're more likely just because you're, you, you are that DIY type person you're more likely to be able to build an organization where you find people that have real domain expertise. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I'm curious. Uh, we're, we're running short, a little bit close to the end of our time, but I, I wanted to ask you about sort of, we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the difference between entrepreneurs that think of ideas and, and, and think about an opportunity and versus the folks that actually take that first step. I'm curious to know. So when you were in, uh, at the, at the, um, your in-house's general counsel and you had this idea for, for, um, for the social network that you were, that you were planning, what was your first step? Like, how did you, how did you decide to go from idea to action and, and maybe describe that process? Cause I think that's kind of, kind of the thing that a lot of people are, um, can learn from is how to, how to, how, you know, how easy it is to, to just take that first step. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be a huge step is my, my thought, but I'm curious to know what your experience was. I mean, 
Tony Robbins says people change their lives either because um, they so dislike where they are, where they're so inspired um, about an alternate path. And, and then he goes on to essentially say, and virtually no one <laughs> changes because of the inspiration. Most people change because they can't stand what they're doing. And I couldn't stand this idea that I was, um, you know, working at a company that just, I found, um, I didn't find inspirational. And so for me, it didn't, it never felt like a decision. I mean, I was, I had put together with another guy, a group that met in the evenings for the purpose of coming up with ideas and internet ideas. And we had agreed that, um, if someone came up with a good idea, we would all quit our jobs simultaneously. And, and then we would all go work on the idea together and we co-own the idea. But if we couldn't agree, then the person, um, we, if people weren't willing to quit their jobs and the person who came up with the idea would own it. And so I came up with this idea for six degrees and everyone was like, we love it. And I said, um, great, let's quit our jobs. And no one was willing to quit their jobs. So I quit the group and, um, and then I very quickly quit my job. And I benefited immensely from not knowing how difficult it would be. Mm. I, I think the number one thing first-time entrepreneurs benefit from, it, it, there is, people think, you know, you hear it over and over again, I need more experience, I need to know more, I need to know more, I need to know more. And a, a lot of times knowing more, I mean, is not always to your benefit. Sometimes it's to your benefit to believe the finish line is a year away because you're more likely to get going. It's never a year away. I mean, it's it, part of being an entrepreneur is this ability to repeatedly, what I say, willfully delude yourself that things are going to be easier than they are. Otherwise, you'll never do it. So that's what I'm. That's what I was able to do was sort of convince myself, um, this is not going to be that hard, even though it was really hard. Yeah. But I was able to convince myself, you know, this is not going. And and by the way, every time you you know. You convince yourself and then you're about to run out of money and you figure out how, you know, not to run out of money and you convince yourself again, I'm, I'm at the finish line. Even though a smart, a smarter person would say, I'm nowhere near the finish line. If you were to, you know, a rational person would say, I'm nowhere near the finish line. But there, there's something helpful about being irrational in your own mind about how close the finish line is. It gives you sort of this ability to keep going because if you actually took the time to think about it, it would seriously bum you out how hard being an entrepreneur is. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, I mean, do you, I take it, um, I mean, we have people who sort of self-select who, who either do or don't do. And then in your, your sort of perspective on people who are considering making a leap is um, be realistic about what's involved, but at the same time, um, I mean, it's just. It, I mean, I think there are some people who are perhaps not well served by by doing it, right? I think some people just shouldn't do it. Um, it's and it's, but it's hard to know because I'm a cheerleader. I love to encourage people to just make the jump, right? Because I I I like to see people try, but at the same time, I mean, maybe it's 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 probably not the right thing for a fair number of people. I don't know. I I think you know, life is short. You should do what you love. It's whatever you love. If you love to to cook, you should figure out how to how to cook every day, whether it's a hobby or whether it's professional. If you love to, you know, if you love to paint, if you love to be a creator, you know, it, you should do what you love. And 
So if you've got this desire, or if you are miserable doing what you're doing, and you've got this desire to work for yourself, um, no, I, I think what you should do, I think you should do it. I, I would incur, I encourage, I encourage everybody, not everyone to be an entrepreneur, but everyone to do what they love. And, but with respect to being an entrepreneur, you know, I think there are certain things you have to do before you get going. And one of them is have a perspective on something bigger than yourself. That, that's the first thing. No matter what it is, even if you're, if you're opening up a restaurant, you have to have a perspective that this is a good block. This is a good neighborhood for my restaurant. This is a good, you know, there, there is, you know, this broader excitement about not just the neighborhood. There's a broader excitement about um, this style of food. I mean, it's, it's, you can't just live in isolation with an idea. But if, you, if you're able to articulate that perspective... And then what, you know, what I like to do is I like to see, because I come up with lots of ideas, whether I'm bored by my own ideas eight weeks later or 12 weeks later. And so I, I, when, I'm, when I'm actively thinking about starting a business, I have these little tests for myself to see whether or not my interest wanes. How do you do that? And then, yeah, one, that's, that's, I'd love to hear about that because I can't tell you how many times I've been pumped up about an idea that got started, you know, kind of on the preliminary stuff and then just lost steam because the idea, uh, I don't know, it just didn't keep me going. How do you, how do you tell? So, one, so one, one thing I do is I'm not a big believer in, you know, keeping my idea secret. So one thing I do is when I come up with an idea, I share it with a ton of people, a ton of people. Most of whom, in, in, in my experience, most of whom have had very critical feedback and suggested that for a host of reasons, each of my ideas didn't make sense. And I absorbed the feedback, but I never made my decision about whether to do something based on the feedback. I mean, for Six Degrees, everyone told me it was the dumbest idea. I had some people tell me not only is the idea dumb, but I'm dumb for even coming up with an idea for, for, uh, for social networking. That never discouraged me. In other words, the feedback. What I wanted to see was whether my excitement waned after speaking with lots of people, whether my excitement moved on to the next thing. And one of the ways to keep an idea top of mind is to share it freely, to listen to the feedback, and then see whether the feedback wanes your excitement. Mm -hmm. And so your example before was... Um, I can't remember which which of you said you know you know these people that come up with an idea and six months later they're still talking about the idea and you know that's bad that they're doing nothing about it and I don't know what that person who six months over six months did to actually explore that idea. One way you guarantee that you're exploring an idea is you share it with a huge number of people and and not just random people like you look for people that have some experience in the space. You network with people that are close to it. And you, you know, unless you're, you know, um, um, unless you've got some secret sauce that you can't share, you know, the people that are the smartest in the space are going to give you the best feedback and you're just measuring your excitement. And, and, and to be honest, you know, I have started, uh, I have come up with ideas. I've written business plans, spoken with people and my excitement waned. And it waned either because um, sometimes I got feedback that made sense to me about why this wasn't a good idea. Sometimes I got, um, you know, feedback about why the area wasn't that exciting and, and what else was going on. And I expanded my, you know, my own mind about about a space. Sometimes I just got bored. I mean, I, I mean, the majority of times, 
I, when I substantially explore an idea, I find myself bored with my own idea a couple months later. But that's what I would tell everyone to do. Like, push the envelope. Try to create uh, pressure for yourself. Try to create this situation where you're engaged with a lot of people. You'll find if you share your idea with a lot of people, those people will send you links about articles. Those people will say, hey, by the way, I, I, um, you know, after we met, I spoke with someone else who's really smart in the space. Maybe you want to speak with them. And, and you're, if you're a critical thinker, you will refine your idea and then you'll make a determination whether your excitement has waned. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I try to do. Most of the time, my excitement wanes. Yeah, you know, one quick way to, to, to make your excitement wane, if you, if you have a business that lends itself to this, is to try to sell the product. Uh, you know, nothing, yeah. nothing takes the wind out of my sails more than the, the sales process of having to try to convince someone to buy this thing that I'm about to make. So maybe it's, a, maybe it's a landing page that's mocked up, or maybe it's talking to people who would be pen, potentially Absolutely. be the customer. Because the sales part, to me, is the least fun of the whole thing. I love building things. Selling things is hard. Um, if you if you have a product that you can get to, you know, minimum viable product or that you can create a mock-up and try to actually talk to people that might be the one that, to buy it, you'll get a sense of how hard it is to get them to take your call. It, it, it'll, you know, if, if, if you really are passionate about the project, you'll keep going. But th- that to me is one of the quickest ways to like find out if you've got, um, if, if you want to stick with a particular idea, because that, that kind of feedback is particularly uh, rough when it's when people aren't receptive. Here's one way your, your excitement will never wane. Share your idea once a month for a very short period of time and, and you know, where you don't get critical feedback and you don't iterate on your idea so it always sounds good. And then you'll never do it and your excitement will never wane. Right? I mean, I mean that, that's, that's what you're fighting against. So what you want to do is bring things to a boil as quickly as possible. And it, I mean, if you're thinking about starting something and not be someone who says, you know, I had this great idea to sell books online, you know, before Jeff Bezos and tell that story for the rest of your life. Because that's boring. And you just don't want to be, that's not, that's not, you know, you shouldn't want to be that person who's talking about, you know, I, I could have bought that building before, um, before it appreciated in value, or I, I could have done something before everyone else did it. You should, if you generate an idea and it excites you, you should try to bring it to a boil as fast as possible and see where your head is once it comes to a boil. And that's how you make a decision whether to pursue an idea. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Really great. I, I, I'm, we should have you on again because I have a feeling you've got a lot more to say about this stuff. And I think it's really interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks, Andrew, for being on the show. Um, Joe, any party th- parting thoughts? Well, yeah. Well, if people want to, um, you know, andrewsroadmaps.com, that's the, that's the email address, correct? Yeah. Or, or, or tune into predictingourfuture.com where we have these series that talk about verticals that I think are about to be massively disrupted. And, and so where I think there are opportunities for entrepreneurs to jump in and do something exciting. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a really, really fun, fun conversation. So super appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you both. And thanks everyone else for listening. We'll see you all next week.